in celebration of the presentation of the King, the glorious resurrection, and the global ramifications of his victory, we pause this morning to consider these amazing events. This is the second sermon in the series of three sermons on the glorious resurrected Christ. Roll covenant reading coming from Isaiah and chapter 26. Isaiah and chapter 26. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. One verse only for our Old Covenant reading. One verse only, verse 19. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, Isaiah writes in praises of the kingdom. He says this. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. John writing to us in John in chapter 11, the first 29 verses, by the same spirit that moved Isaiah to speak of resurrection, so do we read of the resurrected Lazarus. By inspiration of God, the evangelist writes, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day... He stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went away and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard, she arose quickly and came unto him. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower there fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now the raising of Lazarus from the dead was not the first time a dead person was raised to the newness of life after he had been dead. The first instance of a physical resurrection is found in 2 Kings in chapter 4. In 2 Kings in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, we read this. And when Elisha was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead, laid upon his bed. And he went in therefore and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she was coming to him, he said, Take up thy son. And she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Now note the intimacy of this event. First, the scripture establishes that the child was indeed dead. He wasn't sick. He wasn't almost dead. He was in fact dead. To that there can be no doubt. Second, seeing this, and obviously Elisha having compassion upon the mother and the child, he identifies with the child in in such an intimate way by lying down in the child's deathbed almost in the same way as if you would Christ showing pity to his elect children by identifying with them, by sharing in their own bed of death, by becoming man sharing in their Adamic nature. A great intimacy as the Apostle Paul explains to the church at Philippi, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Notice the intimacy. He's relating to us. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the great connection that we have with Christ. Thirdly, the prophet then closes the door so that the resurrection might come without observation. One would think that Elisha would say, I'm keeping the door up. Watch watch what's going to happen here. Isn't this incredible? It's going to be an incredible resurrection. And yet, he closes the door so that this incredible, miraculous resurrection comes without observation in the same way as the initial resurrection of our own spirits do not have an outward show. When God saves us, there's not lightning and thunder and fanfare. It comes without observation. It's very quiet. 
It does, however, reveal itself in time by our reverence, by our faith, by our obedience, and by the showing forth of the fruit of the Spirit. But when we're converted, there's no real fanfare. Then Elisha prays. He understood that the power of resurrection lay not in himself, but in the power of God. And this is exactly what Jesus did before he resurrected Lazarus. But in Jesus' case, he was himself the resurrection and the life which he would bestow upon Lazarus. And we read this in verse 41 of John 11, verse 41 and following. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was lain, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, notice he's praying, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Elisha then does something very odd. He places his entire body upon the boy. He places his entire body upon the dead son. Not only did Elisha identify with the child's deathbed, he identifies with the dead child himself. Notice, and he went up and lay upon the child, and he puts his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands, and he stretches himself upon the child. Note how Elisha is targeting certain parts of the body which are some of the most important parts of the body, until he finally places his entire body upon the child. It's almost as if to say, my body is now your body, and your body is now my body. My life I will give for your life, and I will take the deadness of your life on my life. And is this not what the Apostle Paul spoke of when he refers to the eternal churches as the body of Christ? Not only are we the body of Christ, but our mouths speak His word, our eyes see His glory, our hands serve His cause to build the kingdom. So everything in Scripture is written for a purpose to show us this incredible intimacy between us and Christ. And I believe there's a special significance as to the way Elisha places his own mouth upon the child, his mouth upon the child's mouth. One might look at this and this is very odd, this is very strange. But according to Solomon, the mouth is that body part which is most intimate. It is from the mouth where a kiss is given. Solomon says this in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2, speaking of the Christ, the Shulamite says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Now, not only does the mouth speak the gospel of life, it is where a kiss is given, and that's important. According to Solomon, this is where the token of love and affection and reconciliation are given. It is through the kiss when we reconcile. And this is why when we go to this marriage ceremony, it's always the kiss. Well, why is there a kiss after the proclamation of Husband and wife are now one, joined as one. Because the fall of Adam and Eve made a breach in their relationship where they needed reconciliation. So when they marry today, we symbolically say, you may now kiss the bride, there's a reconciliation. We even have the phrase in our tradition, kiss and make up, representing reconciliation. And why the apostle tells the saints to greet one another with a holy kiss. 
And this is why David, in Psalm 2, cautions the rebellious kings of the earth to kiss the sun lest he be angry and ye perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. It's all about reconciliation. But there's another aspect of the mouth. Not only is it where we speak the gospel, where we kiss to reconcile, but it's from the mouth where the breath comes from. And that too is significant. By the breath of God, life is given, particularly spiritual life. And we see this first in Genesis in chapter 2. In verse 7 of Genesis 2, we read this. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. He breathed into life to man that he would become a living soul. We see this set forth more clearly in John's gospel in John 20, 22, beginning in verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father had sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, notice, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So notice the importance of this breathing, this breath, mouth to mouth. Today even we see in the medical world we have the recitation of someone who is having trouble breathing. We give them mouth to mouth. Now once Elisha accomplishes this, the child's life returns And the scripture says his body becomes warm. No longer is this child cold as the cold-blooded serpents and reptiles of the earth, but now he is given the warmth of life as if he was in the warmth of the sun, S-U-N, because of the sun of righteousness and his power of resurrection. Elisha then curiously returns to the child a second time, places his body upon him again, And we note the child's initial reaction, very curious, very strange. The child sneezes seven times. Now the word in the Hebrew used for sneeze is the Hebrew word which means to dispel or diffuse or to get rid of something that is foreign in in, in your nostrils, an irritant. Sneezing is a physiological response to irritation of the respiratory system, particularly from the area of the nose. And it was common during the Middle Ages to consider sneezing as a sign that you had expelled a demon. That demon had infected you, it got into you somehow, and when you sneezed, you expelled him. And therefore, after a sneeze, a passerby, we do this even today, they would pronounce a blessing. So when you hear someone sneeze, oh, God bless you. Because you got rid of that devil... You got rid of that demon, now you need to be blessed. However, it is more likely that since Elisha had breathed life into the child, it caused a reaction. So if the child was expelling something, what was the child expelling? One can only speculate, and surely it was not a devil, since there was no mention of that in the narrative, so what was it? Well, the word used for sneeze is actually the Hebrew word which means to be a foreigner or a stranger. Could it be then that the imagery here is indicating that the child was expelling that sinful pollution of his Adamic nature, which was foreign to his original intent before the fall of Adam? Now that, of course, is plausible. Whatever the case, the sneezing results in the child sitting up. He has now risen from the dead. He stands on his feet. He sits up in his bed. No more a stranger, no more a foreigner to the commonwealth of Israel, but now a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners. You have expelled the old nature and embraced the new, but rather now you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now in the second instance of the dead being raised, it is found in 2 Kings chapter 13 after the death of Elisha. Notice 2 Kings 13 verse 20 and 21. And Elisha died and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass as they were burying a man that behold, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Well, in this historical account, Elisha is buried and the Moabites have invaded the land. Now, while the Moabites are occupying that territory, a group of men who needed to bury their friend, their comrade, they saw the Moabites and were so frightened that the Moabites would then attack them and kill them. They were so afraid In order to escape, so as not to be molested by the Moabites, they hastily threw the dead man's body into the open grave of the prophet Elisha. And as soon as the body touched the bones of the dead carcass of the prophet, the man was resurrected to life. He raised again to life. The Reverend Howies gives these insights. He says, quote, A band of the Moabites making a sudden interruption into the land of Israel were perceived by a company who were carrying a corpse to the grave. In haste to escape, they threw it into a sepulcher at hand which happened to be Elisha's. And no sooner had the dead body touched the prophet's bones than it revived. If the bones of a prophet have such power to raise the dead, how much more shall the grave of Jesus open to us the gates of life and immortality? When dying believers lay their bodies in the dust, it is in sure and in certain hope of a glorious resurrection. This too is a very interesting historical event. It is interesting that the account of this resurrection is so specific. Now what it doesn't say is as important as to what it does say. It doesn't say that the dead man touched the dead body of Elisha but rather expressly it says his bones. This is very specific language, and to ignore it is to ignore the inerrancy of Scripture. Furthermore, to ignore the specificity of the language is also to ignore the gospel message therein. And so we ask, well, why the bones and not simply the body? Well, when a careful search of how bones are referred to in Scripture, we quickly realize that the bones of a man represent the whole of the man. In other words, the entirety of his being. Some bones are honored in the scripture, while others are not. Some bones are buried, while others are burnt. David uses bones to identify people. Notice, in the case of Psalm 35, he is referring to God's people. Notice, Psalm 35, verse 9 and 10. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, in other words, my whole body, All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee, which delivers the poor from him that is too strong for him, yea, the poor and the needy from him that spoil him. David says this in Psalm 51, 8. Notice what he says. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Now, in in examining Psalm 51, 8, Reverend Benjamin Keach comments. Notice what the Reverend says. Here, 
In Psalm 51.8, David glorifying and rejoicing in God is attributed to the bones. David himself is attributed to the bones, which is the property of man. It's as if he had said, I will inwardly and heartily glorify thee and rejoice in thee. Now, whenever Christ refers to his people, he refers to them as bones. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In order to relate the intimacy of his marriage union with the church. The most powerful explanation of these bones comes from Ezekiel 37, where the bones of God's people who are identified as Israel and his army are lying in the valley, dried up and dead upon the ground. Notice here in Ezekiel 37, and how when they are joined to the bone of God, they become bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Notice 37, 1 and following. A lengthy reading, but let me read this to you. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again, he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you. There it is, breath of the mouth, the resurrection power. I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath into you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came in unto them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. So here we see the bones are symbolic of the people of God as well as God himself. So Elijah represents Christ as a type, showing us once again that whenever we are redeemed to the newness of life, it is as if we have touched the bones of Christ, made bone to his bone, so as to be joined to him in our covenant marriage to him. And that's why he says, you are now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And there's something else here though. The idea of simply touching the bones made me curious as to the actual Hebrew wording and its etymology. 
Because when the man just touched the bones, it seems as if he just touched them and he came to life. And that was curious to me. Now the word used here in the Hebrew for touched is actually the Hebrew word naga, which is a euphemism, a vague term used when a man has intimate relations with a woman. But it can be better translated in this instance as the word joined. As if to say, when the dead man was let into the grave and he joined to the bones, he was very intimately joining to the bones, placed in the grave, joined to the prophet's bones, then he raised up. And there's the word touched, is really the word joined, which is a very intimate wording speaking of a marital relationship. And this makes perfect sense when we examine all the scriptures that lend itself to that conclusion. Now, when Mary saw the resurrected Christ, her immediate response was to run and hug him. And that's what she did. But he tells us something very strange. Touch me not. Now, she was probably already touching him. But why would he say, touch me not? Jesus saith unto her, John 20, verse 17, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Now, I believe that Jesus was simply telling her that she couldn't at this time be joined to him until after his coronation and then after Pentecost. You see, once Jesus was coronated, he would then send the indwelling spirit who would actually join Christ with his people. Paul uses the same language when writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things wherein ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now is Paul saying we can't touch, we can't shake hands or have an embrace? Is that really what Paul is saying? Now that might be good advice. For some people it might be great advice. But is that the thrust of his warning? Not if you read the next verse. In verse 2 he says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So really what Paul is referring to is an intimate joining. It's good not to be joined to a woman. That's not your wife. And so we are not to be joined to any woman unless we are married to that woman. And Paul uses the same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Here he is warning the saints not to be joined to idols. He used the same word. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, does that mean that we can't go touch an idol? No, it means you can't be joined to an idol. Whether it's psychologically, spiritually, or practically. Although Paul uses a little bit of a different Greek word here. The idea is nevertheless similar to his admonition in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. Notice what he says. What? Know ye not that he which is joined? Same idea as touched, but he uses the word joined. Very much, very more emphatic at this point. To an harlot is one body, for two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Now the next event of resurrection is found in Luke chapter 7. You know, when we think about the resurrection, we think of Lazarus and then Jesus. But now we're in the third resurrection. 
Luke chapter 7, Jesus shows mercy to a bereaved mother in the same way that Elisha showed mercy to a bereaved mother in the Old Testament. Notice Luke chapter 7, verse 11 and following. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he had come nigh to the gate of the city, behold, it was a dead man carried out. We know he's dead. He's a dead man. He's carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, notice, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the beer. And notice, he touched the beer. He joined himself to the beer, to the place where the man was lying. And they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead, no doubt about it, he was dead. He sat up and began to speak. Because when we are resurrected, we begin to speak the glory of God and the message of the gospel. And he delivered him unto his mother. The third time we see resurrection. In Matthew 9, we have the fourth time we see resurrection with Jairus' daughter is brought back to life. This account is also recorded in Mark and in Luke. This is the fourth time the scripture records a resurrection. Two for Elisha and now two for Jesus. When we consider the historical account of Lazarus, however, we notice that this account is special in that we learn a number of truths concerning him and the situation of his death. This fifth resurrection is more detailed. The fifth resurrection of Lazarus is more detailed than the others. First, Lazarus, as with the others, is a real person who really died and was really resurrected. These are historical events as the others. Second, Lazarus, as well as the others, is an illustration of all of God's people that have died in Adam and who will be resurrected by the power of the resurrected Christ. Yet, thirdly, the account of Lazarus is not really about Lazarus at all. The resurrection is really not about Lazarus at all. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about his compassion on his own. It's about his majestic power. It's about him being the resurrection himself in the life. It's about the glorification of God. As God resurrects his soul, he is glorifying himself by the mercy that he bestows upon us. These facts are essential if we are to understand the historical event of Lazarus. Now consider the players here. You have Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the disciples, and of course Jesus. Mary, Martha were sisters. Lazarus was their brother. Mary is the same Mary in this account that washed the feet of Jesus with the precious ointments in the house of Simon the leper who was at the sepulcher on resurrection morning and who very well might have been the woman taken in adultery that Jesus forgave. Notice Luke chapter 7, verse 37. And behold, the woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 8 of Luke, we read this of the same woman, and a certain woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Same woman. Note how her sin of adultery is being likened to being possessed with seven devils. That's how horrible it was. Now we learn something else very intimate about the Lord. He loved these people. And you think about God loving the unlovable. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, 
God, the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificed himself for us. He loved his people. Verse 5 of John 11. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Very, very clear. God wanted to make this very clear. He loved these people. Now one thing that we can learn from this is that even though God loves us, and even though God loved these people, they were still subject to sorrow and hardship. Even though God loves us, we are still subject to sorrow and hardship. And that's very important. That's a very important lesson for us. Just because we are loved of God, it does not exempt us from the hardships and sorrows of life. And yet God walks with us in those hardships and those sorrows. What is particular about these three individuals, which is a product of grace and faith, is that amidst their sorrow, they look to Jesus without hesitation. A careful reading of the scripture says that they ran to him. When they saw Jesus, they ran to him to tell him all of what they were going through, that their beloved brother Lazarus had died. They don't run away. They don't despise him. They don't lose faith. Their hardship, instead of driving them away from the Christ, their hardship drives them to the Christ. Their difficulties drives them to the Christ. They're not trying to figure it out themselves. They're going to the Christ. So their hardships drive them to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the answer and they knew He was the answer. He was the answer to their fear. He was the answer to their hardship. He was the answer to their sorrow. And so they immediately sent for the Master. By resurrecting Lazarus, Jesus shows without question that He is not only the Son of God, but He Himself is the resurrection power of God. And this sign was the ultimate sign of Christ's veracity as God incarnate, the promised Messiah. Lazarus was actually going to be the seventh miracle that the Lord had performed, not the seventh resurrection, the seventh miracle that the Lord had performed throughout the Testaments. As we shall see, it is also fascinating when we consider the total number of resurrections. So far, we have five. If we include Jesus the Christ, we have six. But there is still another resurrection that we shall find in the Acts of the Apostles as the seventh. But as we look at the human resurrections, the number six, the six human resurrections, we see the resurrections of Elisha, the resurrections of Elisha's bones, the resurrection of the men whom Jesus resurrected, and then, of course, Lazarus the fifth. And then later on, we shall see Dorcas being resurrected, or as the name is Tabitha, being resurrected for a total number of human resurrections, six. And Christ being the supernatural resurrection, actually the power of the resurrection as for a total number of resurrections as seven, which is always the number of perfection in the Bible. The number seven often looks at the number of perfection that God gives us, the number seven. But here we find that the human resurrections are six, six human resurrections. Now, if the number six refers to anything, it refers to the number of man since Adam was created on the sixth day. And of course, in Revelation, we see that there are six, six, six specified, and that number is very clearly spoken of as the number of man. Perhaps the three sixes, seeing man seeking to be the triune God, these six resurrection events of, of the human beings outside of the Christ being the resurrection himself, could it be that these six resurrection events of the human people 
Could it be that God is stating that he will redeem mankind from the fallen state that Adam had put him in through the perfection of resurrections, the number seven, the resurrected power himself, the Lord Jesus Christ? Surely now this is possible. We have the number six, the number of man. God will have a remnant of himself from dead man, bringing them into the newness of life. Now to be sure, Lazarus was dead. If there was any doubt, they said that he stunk. Four days dead. And I think that's why Jesus waited. Very odd. He knew Lazarus was dead, but he tarried still three days. In the same place, he abode two days, and then on the third day, he came. These three days might have been an anticipation of the three days that Jesus himself would have to spend in the belly of the earth and then be resurrected. He then tells them that the reason behind his delay and the reason for the death of their their beloved brother was for the glory of God so that they might believe, John 11, 15. This was to be the, the crucial miracle for the solidification of their faith. I will show you that I am the resurrection so that your faith is strengthened. Everything that the Lord does is for his glory, but also for the perfecting of the faith of his beloved. So when we read of six resurrections in the Testament, We have to recognize this is just incredible. And it's a promise that God will resurrect us, not only our spirits, but our bodies. Now, the more God's people manifest faith in God, the more he is glorified therein. Jesus then makes his way to Bethany to the grave of Lazarus, only to find him dead already. And when he arrives, he tells Martha that Lazarus will rise again. Now, think about the astuteness, the theological astuteness of Martha. Notice what she says in verse 24. I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She was studying the scriptures. She was theologically correct, looking for the promise of the resurrection at the last day. But she was unaware that the resurrection Christ, that Christ himself was that resurrection. And that's why Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die And then he says, do you believe this? This statement supplies the central doctrine of this event and the entirety of the gospel, that it is Jesus in his own person who is both the resurrection and the life. Because without him, there can be no resurrection. Without him, there can be no life. And without him, there can be no forgiveness. By raising Lazarus, Christ shows Martha that he is the life-giving Messiah and those who believe upon him will be partakers of his life. Notice what the apostle says. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, he says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life because he is the resurrection and the life. And then in verse 35 of John 11, we read this. Jesus wept. And herein is the empathy of the son of God over the plight of man. He weeps over the death of Lazarus as a result of the sin of mankind. And upon seeing their misery and death, their sorrow and their pain, Jesus weeps. And he does so. And this is what's so incredible about Jesus weeping. 
he does so despite knowing that in just a moment, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to take him out of that dead, cold grave. And this proves that he is able to intimately share in the sorrow of his brethren. But what he is weeping over is not so much Lazarus himself that he has died, but rather he weeps over the willful destruction and rebellion of mankind that has affected all of mankind and destroyed the world, bringing it under the curse. But he weeps also over his own elect. He weeps even amidst of rejoicing that there will be a remnant which will enter into the joy and peace of the Father by the work of the resurrection and the life the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus commands for the stone to be rolled away. And that's what the disciples do when they declare the resurrected Christ. They roll away the stone, the condemnation of the law. They set up the Christ of God sitting upon the throne, sitting upon the throne of God. The resurrection act was to be the cornerstone of the work of the Savior. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Notice, he initiates the salvation. And he that was dead, notice how over and over he's saying, he was dead, he was dead, he was dead. He wasn't just sick, he's dead. And he that was dead came forth. By the sovereign intervention of God, Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Because it is God who initiates the call to the dead and not the other way about. It is God who is sovereign. Unilateral intervention that raises man from death to life, from the power of sin to the power of the resurrected Lord. And so by the irresistible power of the Son of God, Lazarus, Lazarus couldn't say, uh, I think I like it here. Irresistibly comes out of the tomb because of the irresistible power of the resurrected Christ. Now, so far, these resurrections were anticipations of what Christ would do culminating in himself. His resurrection would be number five. But there would be a sixth. There would be a sixth resurrection after Pentecost, which would validate what the previous resurrections anticipated and what Christ had accomplished by his own resurrection. And we read of this in Acts chapter 9 in the account of Dorcas. Acts chapter 9, verse 36 and following, we read this. And there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. It came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom they had washed and laid her in an upper chamber. Notice, when you die, usually your loved ones wash the body because you're dead, This lady was dead. She was dead. No life. They washed her and they put her into a chamber ready to bury her. And for as much as little was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. And Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth. Notice. Put them all out of the room and kneeled down and prayed. And turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand 
and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. No doubt about it, she was dead, and now she is alive. Now there are a number of lessons to be learned which are explicitly yoked. A number of lessons to be learned which are explicitly yoked to the idea of the resurrection. Of the most important is that whenever the soul is resurrected, there is a change of life. There's a change of thinking. Consider, as a result of the resurrected soul, there's a focus on righteousness. There's a hatred for sin. There's a shame and a sorrow and repentance over sin. There's a focus which is Christward. It's kingdomward. There's a desire to do the will of God, to lean on His strength, to hope in His imputed righteousness. There is also a thirsting after righteousness. There's a thirsting after the knowledge of Christ. In other words, you just can't get enough. Hungering and thirsting after the word of God. There is also a love toward God, but there's also a love toward His people. We go out of our way for others. We forgive our brothers and sisters who have done us wrong. We recognize that Christ has forgiven us of all of our wickedness. And therefore we have to be loving to our brothers and sisters. And so there's a love toward God and to His people. There's a show of mercy to those that are in need of mercy. But there's also a show of contempt to those who continue to blaspheme without remorse. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Colossae this, If ye then be risen, in other words, since you are risen, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your affections on the things above, not on things on the earth. A new mindset, a new affection, a new worldview. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. So when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Because those who are truly resurrected in their souls, they're passionate about God's truth. They diligently seek to follow after His righteousness. That's what makes a true saint after Lazarus' resurrection. During Passover week, he sits at the festival table of the Lord and eats with him, illustrating to us that bond of fellowship that Lazarus had with Jesus. You see, Lazarus provides a powerful testimony of a man that has gone from death to life. We too should have that very same Lazarus testimony. Finally this. The testimony of Lazarus was also an indictment against the wicked. If you remember, they wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. They wanted to kill Jesus and the witness of the resurrection. They still want to kill Jesus and the witness of his resurrection, which ye are if you are in Christ. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. John 12, verse 10. You see, those who are not of the resurrection, those who are not of the regeneration, those who are not Christ's, will always seek to negate or to do away with any reference to the Lord's sovereignty and his covenant requirements. And so the message of Lazarus is very simple. It's very simple. You must be born again. You must have had your entire thinking reoriented and your life both re-examined and then reconstructed according to the word of God in order to be part of the family of God. In this way, and only in this way, will you have the sure hope of heaven. So beloved, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, may today be the day where 
those of you, especially you young people who have neglected to deeply examine yourself, begin that, that painful process of examination. The apostle tells us over and over, examine yourself to see, to make sure that you are in the faith, lest you be reprobate. But don't do this for my sake because the pastor told you or because your mommy and daddy told you. Don't even do it for Christ's sake. Do it for your own sake, your own eternal well-being. Make your calling and election sure. Examine your ways. See if they are not righteous. And if they are not righteous, repent and seek the face of Christ so that you may sing with all of the saints the praises of him who is both the resurrection and the life. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.